6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Birth of a Nation. He makes a claim to each part. I am the door. Anyone that comes in by me is a thief and a robber. I am the light of the world, he claims. I am the bread of life. He, of course, is our intercessor. And, of course, he's our sin bearer. And he's also a propitiation for our sins. And how appropriate it would be to if he rules from the very throne that makes his kingdom possible. But uh, the coverings, the whole tabernacle is portable building, which was wood covered with gold, panels that were made wood but covered with gold, so the whole thing had an elegant appearance. Uh, but first thing you did, you, you covered it with embroidered linen, embroidered with cherubim, gold, purple, blue, and scarlet, gorgeous tapestry. And that's what, if you looked up, because that was covering the building, that's what you see from the inside. You wouldn't see it from the outside, because on top of that, they covered it with goat's hair. Speaking of the sin bearer and the scapegoat and all of that. And that, in turn, then, is covered with ramskins that were dyed red, speaking of the shed blood. Again, the, the blood emphasis here. From the outside, there's no, it, you, you couldn't tell how attractive it was. It isn't until you get inside that you realize the elegance and the, the beauty of it. And then all this is then covered with porpoise skins or badger skins, depending on your translation. So it had no form nor comeliness that you would desire it. And yet, if you enter, you discover what it's really all about. So uh, there it is. And there's an outer area, the inner court, and the holy place. And many people make the note, note that the outer areas corresponds to the body, the inner court, the soul, and the inner part, the spirit, the body, soul, and spirit is a trinity of man, if you will. When you get to um, the monarchy, God is going to add some things to this to make the temple. And it's going to be very instructive to see what he adds. We'll deal with that when we get there. The breastplate of the high priest is also dealt with in Exodus, the 12 stones for the 12 tribes. Each of the names of the 12 tribes is a three-letter root, or a Hebrew root that's embroidered on each of the stones. Some people suspect that it was the glimmer of the light from the menorah on those that gave the high priest's instructions, but that's speculation. Then we get to the book of Leviticus. We'll spend a lot of time there, but it's a book that should be studied rather than just read. It talks about the requirements for fellowship, the holiness the precepts of his law, his standards of conduct. It also deals with the penalties that are attached to the violations thereof. And uh, the ground for this fellowship then is sacrifice. And this, of course, all the sacrifices, all these minute technical things, all point to Jesus Christ. We have a detailed commentary on that for those that want to get into that. But you'll discover every detail is anticipatory of the ultimate sacrifice. Not the sacrifice of bulls and goats, but of Jesus Christ on the cross. Everything points to that. And that, of course, leads to the walk of fellowship, which is one of separation. 
which was the preparation for the coming Messiah. So the offerings are in two groups. There are voluntary offerings, sometimes called sweet savor. Those are to God. A burnt offering, meal offering, and peace offering being three categories. There's also a group of offerings that are not voluntary. They're compulsory, not sweet saving. That's for us, for our benefit. A sin offering, a trespass offering. And all the different offerings are in one of those five categories if you study the book of Leviticus. But there's something else about Leviticus I want to touch on as we get into this here, and that is the uh, appointed times in, Hebrews, in Leviticus 23. Rabbi Samson Hirsch said many years ago, the Jews' catechism is this calendar. You know, most denominations have a catechism, a statement of belief. The Jews' catechism is their calendar. If you, the more you study their calendar, the more you understand their whole uh, situation. It's a heptatic calendar. It's a sevenfold uh, type thing. There's a week of days. We all are familiar with that. We all have weeks of days, seventh day being Shabbat. They also have a week of weeks, and, uh, which leads to the Feast of Shavuot. They also have a week of months, the religious year, from Nisan to Tishri, Tishri being the seventh month of the religious year. They have a week of years, what's called the sabbatical year. Six years you can plow the ground, the seventh you have to let it rest, the Sabbath for the land as well. And if you take seven of those and add one, you have the Jubilee year. Very interesting thing. All the land in those days reverted to its owners. You didn't sell land in Israel. You really indulged what you and I would call the lease. Because in the Jubilee year, it would return to its original tribal uh, inheritance and so forth. In the Jubilee year, all the slaves would go free. If you'd indentured yourself to servitude, you could look to the Jubilee years at, uh, a year that it, all bets are off. It's sort of like a bankruptcy today. All debts are forgiven in the, in the Jubilee year. So, so that's uh, an interesting issue in the, in the Jewish structure. But what's interesting, what makes this even more profound, when you get to Acts chapter 3 in Peter's second sermon, he makes reference to the second coming of Christ as the time of the restitution of all things. He seems to link the second coming of Christ to the same events that typify the Jubilee year. Land goes back to its owners, slaves go free, debts forgiven, and so on. So we begin to realize that in these, these patterns that God sets down in the Old Testament lies our understanding for the New. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. But this term appointed times, you may recall in, in our earlier session in Genesis chapter 1, said God said, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. This word for seasons is actually hamoyedim. It's uh, the appointed times. What's very peculiar is that you understand there are 70 appointed times. There are 52 Sabbaths, seven days of Passover, including its related feasts. There's one, uh, there's a feast of Shavuot, a feast of Yom Teruah, a uh, feast of trumpets, that is, feast of Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, seven days of Sukkot, a feast of tabernacles, and uh, Shemini Atzeret. Uh, so when you add those all up, there's 70 appointed times in the Jewish calendar. Well, what's rather bizarre, you take this word appointed, uh, hamoyadim, appointed times, and put it on a computer, 
you, first of all, in the book, in, in the 78,000 letters of Genesis, you would think statistically those letters would come up in that order five different, at least five times on some interval. To try all the different intervals, and you, statistically, there's ex, your expectation would be to find it five times. Turns out you only find it once. As an equidistant letter sequence, it appears only once in Genesis. It appears at an interval of 70, and it's centered on Genesis 1.14. Now the question is, gee, that's kind of curious. In other words, you get the sense that God is manipulating the very letters, you follow me, as a form of authentication. The odds of this happening just by randomness have been estimated greater than 1 in 70 million. Interesting. These are one of these examples of what we call an equidistant letter sequence. And it's relevant because it's statistically significant on one hand. And secondly, it's clustered around the plain text. It's clustered where it makes sense on the very verse on which the, the word has significance. Well, let's go on with the Feast of Israel. There are three spring feasts, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Feast of Firstfruits. And there are also three feasts in the fall, Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Passover is on the 14th of Nisan. The Feast of Unleavened Bread starts the next day. Feast of Firstfruits is the morning after Shabbat, after Passover. Passover can be any day of the week, depending on what year it is. Shabbat is the Saturday after that. The next morning is the Feast of Firstfruits, which is always on a Sunday. And of course, when uh, there was a time when uh, the smoke was curling up from the temple, on the Feast of First Fruits, one Sunday morning, and some women were discovering an empty tomb because Jesus Christ was our first fruits. That was where it was being fulfilled. There's also a feast between these. You got three in the first month, three in the seventh month, and you got this weird one in the middle called the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. And there's some very strange peculiarities about it. Passover, of course, four days in advance, the lamb is inspected. That's exactly the day that Jesus was riding the donkey into Jerusalem to be inspected. It's offered between the evenings of the 14th. Bear in mind the Jewish day starts in the evening. So the, the evening of the 14th is, uh, is uh, Friday the 13th on the, the Gentile calendar, which is unlucky. See, the, that's the e Egyptian side of the Passover. The scripture says of the Passover, not a bone was to be broken. And it's interesting that a Roman soldier disobeyed his orders. And of course, Jesus is our Passover. John is in, introduces him that way. And Paul, many places, speaks of Jesus as our Passover. So you, you want to, the more you study Passover, the more you'll be, it'll put significance into the details that's going on in the New Testament. Well, follow that as a feast of unleavened bread. Leaven, of course, is always a symbol of sin in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there are three matzahs always. It's kind of interesting, three matzahs. Christ was crucified between two thieves, right? There are three on that hill. One is taken, broken, and hidden. How interesting. They do that today. They don't know why. The explanation, of course, is in the New Testament. Remember back in the days of Joseph, we had the baker and the wine stew. You have the bread and the wine introduced way back in Joseph. With, in fact, back to Melchizedek, but then also Joseph. In the uh, Passover feast, you have four cups. There's four specific cups in the procedure. The bringing out, the delivering, the blessing, and the taking out. It's the cup of blessing that Jesus blesses to give the Lord's Supper, and they don't finish that meal. 
He's not going to taste the fruit of the vine until he tastes it with us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So there's a whole study you can get into on that. The Feast of First Fruits is an interesting one. It's the morrow after the Sabbath, after Passover. The morning of the ultimate first fruits is, of course, when Jesus Christ was resurrected. And one interesting question is when did the flood of Noah end? Genesis 8 4 says, The ark rested in the seventh month of the seventeenth day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. Notice the word mountains is plural, by the way. Uh, we talked about that. Uh, we talked about the flood, but you keep in mind that Ararat's yet to be discovered. But uh, when did the new beginning under Noah begin? When the ark came to rest, on the seventeenth day of the seventh month. And you have to understand that the Jews have two calendars, Rosh Hashanah in the fall. But then in Exodus 12, verse 2, this month shall be unto the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. That is the month of Nisan, because that's when Passover takes place. So the first of Nisan is the beginning of the religious year. And if you look at the old calendar, Tishri was the first month, Nisan was the seventh. But in the new calendar, as ordained in Exodus, the uh, Nisan is the first month. That makes Tishri the seventh. Then we have this strange thing, the Feast of Shavuot. They count 49 days from the Feast of First Fruits. What's strange about this feast is the only feast in the Bible that ordains the use of leavened bread. That gives us a Gentile complexion. Many people recognize it's prophetic. It was the birth of the church. We call it the Feast of Pentecost. And of course, it's in Acts 2 at the Feast of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit's given, and we have the birth of the church. But there's some other things about that. There's some mysteries behind this a little bit. The oldest prophecy in the Bible was, happens to be uttered by Enoch, the father of Methuselah, way, way back. The prophecy of the second coming of Jesus Christ, astonishingly enough. But Enoch, there's something interesting. He was, he's regarded by the rabbis as having been born on the day that they observed the Feast of Shavuot. Obviously much earlier, but on the same day on the calendar. But also it's interesting that he was removed prior to the judgment of the flood. And it's also interesting that they believe he was raptured on his birthday. And that's in a non-biblical book called The Secrets of Enoch, which is an ancient rabbinical source, not biblical, but interesting. It may account at least for why the rabbis have this peculiar view. But uh, it would be interesting then that the Jewish clock that stopped when the church was born may be restarted on the same day that it was stopped when the rapture takes place. That would imply the rapture takes place on the Feast of Shavuot, which is usually in the June time period. And I say, Chuck, you're setting dates. No, no, I'm not, because Jesus said that what such in days you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Of course, if that's the day you think not, then maybe that's the day he'll come. Okay, <laughs> so we'll go ahead here. The Feast of Trumpets. Many people think the Feast of Trumpets is the big deal. It's coincident with Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is a civil new year, but the Feast of Trumpets is consistent with it, both on first of history. And that's when they have a great blowing of trumpets, and some people try to tie that to the last trump remarks Paul makes, which for some reasons I won't get into here, I don't think fit. And also don't confuse it with the seventh trumpet judgment of the book of Revelation. Those are all three different things. It is followed by Yom Norim, which is the days of affliction, which prepare them, of course, for the big one for them uh, each year is the Yom Kippur, the day of national repentance. The high priest enters the Holy of Holies. This is only on this day throughout the year after great ceremonial preparation. This is the day they have the scapegoat, and they put the sins on the scapegoat and lead them in the wilderness, and so forth.
Then this is followed five days later with Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's very possible that this was the season that uh, Matthew 17 takes place, the Transfiguration, Mount Transfiguration, because Peter is preoccupied about making three booths. These booths are interesting because, uh, and you go to Israel, or in, even a, 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 among observant Jews, you'll discover they actually still do this today. They'll build a booth in the backyard. The specifications require that you can see the sky through the ceiling and the wind can blow through the walls. The idea is to uh, typify, represent the temporary dwellings they endured while wandering the wilderness. And the Feast of Booths climaxes when they leave that for their permanent dwellings. And that's why some people feel that this is the setting up Christ's kingdom and so forth. Anyway, let's get on to the other books here to wrap up the Torah. Book of Numbers deals with the wilderness wanderings. In fact, the Hebrew term for the book isn't numbers, it's Be'midar, which is uh, in, it's in the wilderness. The Greek called it Erethmoi in the Latin numeri, because it happens to include two censuses, so that's why they call it the numbering of the people, which isn't the most relevant part of the book, but that's where it gets its title within the Greek translation, and thus our English translation. That's not the Hebrew term. But anyway, numbers continues where Exodus left off. We paused Exodus to do Leviticus, get all that background, but then we jump in and pick up where Exodus left off. And Numbers is a book about arrested progress. They blew it. It took only 40 hours to get Israel out of Egypt. It took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. 40 years of wilderness wandering. Very strange thing. There's a place called Kadesh Barnea. And after 40 days getting there, Moses sends out 12 spies. They're at the border to enter the land that's been prom the promised land. Ten of the 12 come back terrified. And don't knock it, they had reason to be terrified. It says, there we saw the Nephilim, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, so we were in their sight. There were giants in the land, these strange hybrids, very similar to the ones that we encountered before the flood. Different occasion, but same kind of thing. Nephilim, the fallen ones. Giants is the way it's translated. But they're more than just giants, they were hybrids, apparently mischief by the fallen angels again. So these ten were justifiably frightened, but two of them, Joshua and Caleb, were unimpressed. They said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Why? Because God's with them. If God's on your side, you're a majority. <laughs> Plus. <laughs> so remember Joshua and Caleb were the two of the twelve that came back with a good report. The other ten had their knees uh, knocking. So we have a lost opportunity. And the people of children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or would God that we had died in this wilderness! The people are shook by the report of the ten spies. And they say, Gee, it would have been better off if we had died. And God says, Good idea. Funny you should mention. So God threatens to wipe out everybody. 
But Moses intercedes. Prayer is always God's way of enlisting you in what He wants to do, by the way. Keep that in mind. So God says, Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number of twenty years old and upward, which ye have murmured against me. In other words, those adults that were murmuring are going to pass on. He didn't wipe them all out. He let them live their natural lives. They're going to wander until that whole generation's gone. Their children, who weren't accountable to murder, remember, they're the ones that are going to inherit. There's only two exceptions made. Joshua and Caleb, they had the good report. They become the leaders that will then endure after those 40 years to lead the, the conquest of the land. So Joshua and Caleb and the, and the children of the murmurs entered the land. The others passed away. Forty years, actually 38, but who's quibbling? God prepared Moses, of course, for the 40 years. He had, remember, he'd married Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro, the priest of Midian, on the east shore of the Aqaba. The Midianites, by the way, descended from Keturah. So they're not even descendant from Sarah, but we won't get into that here. And the real Mount Sinai, of course, is in Midian. Uh, so it's, it's a Midian thing. So Now, why is all this going on? The New Testament tells us all these things happen unto them for examples. And they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. In other words, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul in his letter, makes the point that all these details, all these stories in the Old Testament, are there for our understanding and learning. The tragedy in most Christian churches, they've abandoned the Old Testament. They, well, the New Testament fulfilled the Old, so they don't bother with the Old. As a result, they don't really understand the New Testament. This word examples, by the way, is actually the word uh, tupos, which means it's a word from which we get type or prototype, a figure, an image, a prefiguring. And the Bible is full of those. They're, most, they're some of the most exciting discoveries is when you begin to, uh, the Holy Spirit leads you to see some of these types or, or models that we'll look at. Let you give you one of those, manna. Remember in manna, they, were, they needed food. So God gave them the supernatural bread that fell every night, the manna. He also, there was a strange incident of the brazen serpent where um, they're getting bit by snakes and, and God has Moses make a brass serpent, put it on a hill, and those that look at the hill get healed. What a strange way to do a healing. Then the water's from a rock. How many times have you ever struck a rock and had water fall come out of it, right? But it happens twice. And there's something about the order of the camp I want to show you. I'm just, I'm, there's dozens of these things in Numbers. I've just picked a few to give you a flavor of it. The manna. They were in need of food, so God provided a daily provision of manna, a miracle bread from heaven, right? And it's interesting. It was to be provided six days. On the seventh day, it wouldn't come. So on the sixth day, you're supposed to pick up twice as much. Normally, you didn't take more than you need for a day. It would spoil but that one day, if you took twice as much for the day that it wouldn't fall, you're all set. You've got a double portion of the sixth to prevent you gathering any on Shabbat, on the Sabbath day. And by the way, I want you to notice something. This was before the law was given. This, isn't, this happens to be in Exodus 16. The law was given in Exodus 20. So this is in advance. They were observing the Shabbat before the law was given. Very important idea. Then we got the brazen serpent. 
And by the way, I'll, I'll come back. Each one of these is, is points to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, I am the bread of life. The brazen serpent, weird deal. In response to murmuring, murmuring, God sent fiery serpents which bit the people and they died. Moses intercedes. And then he's instructed to place a brass serpent on a pole on a high hill and all that would look toward it would be spared. Now if you're in the book of Numbers 21 and you read this, that's weird. What a strange way to heal people. But that's what God chose. This comes up later in Hezekiah. This brass serpent's still around. People are worshiping it, so he destroys it because it's become an idol. But still, you have no explanation. What's going on here? Brass? Serpent? A serpent's a type of sin. You put sin up on a hill? What's, what's going on here? Jesus explains it to you in John chapter 3. You see? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In other words, this... The serpent remedy in Numbers 21 was deliberately designed by God to anticipate the ultimate remedy we have in Jesus Christ. That's called a macro code. That's the macro code. It's an anticipatory code of structure. On a word processor, if you're doing your word processor and you're going to send a fax or, or make an email or a letter, often you can hit one key that'll format it for you, and you go and put your stuff in it, and it becomes a fact. You know, it's an anticipatory code, a macro, a macro code in the computer parlance, a code that anticipates subsequent content. That's exactly what the, the brazen serpent thing does. But it means that the, the designer of that code is outside the dimensionality of time because he knows what's coming, and he models it to anticipate what's coming. It's interesting that this comment by Jesus Christ in John 14 is the setup for the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What a, word, what a verse that is justifiably the best known verse in the Bible. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station, or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.